Hello guys, we will be now doing the 14th episode of Gandhiji's autobiography. Let's go. I had expected someone on behalf of Dada Abdullah's attorney to meet me at the station of Pretoria. I knew that no Indian would be there to receive me since I had particularly promised not to put up at an Indian house. But the attorney sent no one. I understood later that I, have, I had arrived on a Sunday. He could not have sent anyone without inconvenience. I was perplexed and wondered where to go, as I feared no, that no hotel would accept me. Pretoria station in 1893 was quite different from what it, it was in 1914. The lights were burning dimly, and travellers were few. I left all the other passengers I let the, all, other, all the other passengers go and thought that as soon as the ticket collector was fairly free, I would hand him my ticket and ask him if he could direct me to some small hotel or any other such place where I might go, otherwise I would spend the night at the station. I must confess, I shrank from asking him even this, for I was afraid of being insulted. The station became clear of all passengers. I gave my ticket to the ticket collector and began my inquiries. He replied to me courteously, but I saw that he could not be of any considerable help. But an American Negro was standing nearby, broke into the conversation. I see, he said, that you are an utter stranger here, without any friends. If you, if you will come with me, I will take you to a small hotel of which the proprietor is an American who is very well known to me. I think he will accept you. I had my own doubts about the offer, but I thanked him and accepted his suggestion. He took me to Johnston's family hotel. He drew Mr. Johnston aside to speak to him and the latter agreed to accommodate me for the night on condition that I should have my dinner served in my room. I assure you, he said, that I have no color prejudice, but I have only European custom, and if I allow you to eat in the dining room, my guests will be offended and even go away. Thank you, I said, even for accommodating me for the night. I am now more or less acquainted with the conditions here, and I understand your difficulty. I don't mind your serving the dinner and my room. I hope, I hope to be able to make some other arrangements tomorrow. I was shown into a room where I now sat, waiting for the dinner and musing, as I was quite alone. There were not many guests in the hotel, and I had expected the waiter to come very shortly with the dinner. Instead, Mr. Johnston appeared. He said, I am ashamed of having asked you to have your dinner here. So I spoke to the other guests about you and asked them if they would mind you having the dinner at the dining table. They said they had no objection. 
and that they did not mind your staying here as long as you liked. Please, therefore, come to the dining room, if you will, and stay here as long as you wish. I thanked him again, went to the dining room and had a hearty dinner. The next morning, I called on the attorney, Mr. A. W. Baker. Abdullah Said had given me some description of him. So, his cordial reception did not surprise me. He received me very warmly and made kind inquiries. I explained all about myself. Thereupon, he said, We have no work for you here as a barrister, for we have engaged the best counsel. The case is a prolonged and complicated one, so I shall take your assistance only to the extent of getting necessary information. And of course, you will make communication with my client easy for me, as I shall now ask for all the information I want from you, from him, through you. That is certainly an advantage. I have not yet found rooms for you. I thought I had better do so after having seen you. There is a fearful amount of color prejudice here, and therefore it is not easy to find lodgings for you as such. But I know a poor woman. She is the wife of a baker. I think she will take you and thus add to her income at the same time. Come, let us go at her place. So he took me to her house. He spoke with her privately about me and she agreed to accept me as a boarder at 35 shillings a week. Mr. Baker, besides being an attorney, was a staunch lay preacher. He is still alive and now engaged purely in missionary works. Having given up all, having given up the legal profession, he is quite well-to-do. He still corresponds with me. In his letters, he always dwells on the same theme. He upholds the excellence of Christianity from various points of views and contends that it is impossible to find eternal peace unless one accepts Jesus as the only Son of God and the Saviour of mankind. During my very first interview, Mr. Baker ascertained me my religious views. I said to him, I am a Hindu by birth, and yet I do not know much of Hinduism, and I know less of other religions. In fact, I don't know where I am and what is it and what should be my belief. I intend to make it make a careful study of my own religion and, as far as I can, of other religions as well. Mr. Baker was glad to hear all this and said, I am one of the directors of the South Africa General Mission. I have built a church at my own expense and deliver sermons in it regularly. I am free from color prejudice. I have some some co-workers and we meet at one o'clock every day for a few minutes and pray for peace and light. I shall be glad if you join us there. I shall introduce you to my co-workers who will be happy to meet you and I dare say you will also like their company. I shall give you 
besides some religious books to read though of course the book of books is the holy bible which i would specifically recommend to you i thanked mr baker and agreed to attend the one o'clock prayers as regularly as possible so i shall expect you here tomorrow at one o'clock and we shall go together to pray added mr baker and we said goodbye i had little time for reflection just yet i went to mr johnston paid the bill and removed to the new lodging where i had my lunch the landlady was a good woman she had had cooked a vegetarian meal for me it was not long before i made myself quite at home with the family i next went to see the friend to whom lord abdullah had given me a note from him i learned more of about the hardships of indians in south africa he insisted that i should stay with him i thanked him and told him that i had already made arrangements he urged me not to hesitate to ask for anything i needed it was now dark i returned home had my dinner went in my room and lay there absorbed in deep thought there was not any immediate work for me i informed abdullah said of it what i thought can be the meaning of mr baker's interest in me what shall i gain from his religious co-workers how far should i undertake the study of christianity how was i to obtain literature about hinduism and how was i to understand christianity in its proper perspective without thoroughly knowing my own religion i could come to only one conclusion i should make a dispassionate study of all that came to me and deal with mr baker's group and as god might guide me i shall not think of embracing another religion before i had fully understood my own thus musing i fell asleep the next day at one o'clock i went to mr baker's prayer meeting there i was introduced to miss harris miss gib gab mr coats and many others everyone kneeled down to pray and i followed suit the prayers were supplications to god for various things according to each person's desire thus the usual forms were for the day to be passed peacefully or for to go or for god to open the doors of the heart a prayer was now added for my welfare god show the path to the new brother who has come amongst us give him lord the peace that thou hast given us may the lord jesus who have saved us save him too we ask all this in the name of jesus there was no singing of hymns or other music at these meetings after the supplication of something special every day we dispersed at each going to his lunch that being the hour for it the prayer did not take more than 5 minutes the mrs harry harris and gab were the most elderly maiden ladies mr coats was a quacker the two ladies lived together and they gave me a standing invitation to 4 o'clock tea at their house every sunday when we met on sundays i used to give mr coats my religious diary 
for the week and discuss with him in the books I had read and the impression they left on me. The ladies used to narrate their street experiences and talk about the peace they had found. Mr. Coates was a frank-hearted, staunch young man. We went out for walks together and he took me to other Christian friends. As we came closer to each other, he began to give me books of his own choice until my shelf was filled with them. He loaded me with books as it were. In pure faith, I consented to read them, read all these those books as I went on reading them. We discussed them. I read a number of such books in 1893. I don't remember the names of them all, but they included commentary of Dr. Parker of the City Temple, Pearson's many infallible proofs, and Butler's analogy. analogy. Parts of these were unintelligible to me. I liked some things in them, while I did not like others. Many infallible proofs were proofs in support of the religion of the Bible, as the author understood it. The book had no effect on me. Parker's commentary was morally stimulating, but it could not be of any help to one who had no faith in the prevalent Christian beliefs. Butler's analogy struck me to be a very profound and difficult book, which should be read four or five times to be understood properly. It seemed to me to be returned with a view to to converting atheists to theism. The arguments advanced in a regard in regarding in it regarding the existence of God were unnecessary for me, as I had then passed the stage of unbelief. The arguments in proof of Jesus being the only incarnation of God and mediator between God and man left me unmoved. But Mr. Coates was not the only was not the man easily to accept defeat he had great affection for me he saw round my neck the vaishnav necklace of tulsi beads he thought it to be superstition and pained by it and was pained by it this superstition does not become you come let me break the necklace yo you will not this is a sacred gift from my mother but do you believe in it I do not know its mysterious significance. I do not think I should come to harm if I do not wear it. But I cannot, without sufficient reason, give up a necklace that she put around my neck out of love and in conviction that it would be conducive to my welfare. When, when with the passage of time, it wears away and breaks on on its own accord, I shall have no desire to get a new one, but this necklace cannot be broken. Mr. Coates could not appreciate my argument, as he had no regard for my religion. He was looking forward to delivering me from the abyss of ignorance. He wanted to convince me that no matter 
whether there was some truth in other religions salvation was impossible for me unless i accepted christianity which represented the truth and that my sins would not be washed away except by the intercession of jesus and all and that all good works were useless just as he introduced me to several books he introduced me to several friends whom he regarded as staunch christians one of these introductions was was to a family which belonged to the plymouth brethren a christian sect many of the contacts for for which mr coates was responsible were good most struck with me struck me as being god fearing but during my contact with the with this family one of the plymouth brethren confronted me with an argument for which i was not prepared you cannot understand the beauty of our religion from what you can you say it appears that you must be brooding over your transgressions transgressions every moment of your every moment of your life always mending them and atoning for them how can this this ceaseless life of action bring your redemption bring your redemption you can never have peace you admit that we are all sinners now look at the perfection of our belief our attempts at improvement and and achievement and atonement of futile and yet redemption we must have how can we bear the burden of sin we can but throw it on jesus he is the one sinless son of god it is his word that those who believe in him shall have everlasting life therein lies god's inf- infinite mercy and that and as we believe in the atonement of jesus on his own sins atonement on jesus our own sins do not bind us sin must sin we must it is impossible to live in this world sinless sinless and therefore jesus suffered and atoned for all the sins of mankind he only only he who accepts his great redemption can have eternal peace think what a life of relentless is yours and what a promise of peace we have the argument utterly failed to convince me i humbly re- replied if this be the christianity acknowledged by all christians i cannot accept it i do not seek redemption from all the consequences of my sin i seek to be redeemed from sin itself or rather from the very thought of sin until i have attained attained that end i shall be content to be restless to which the plymouth brother rejoined i assure you your attempt is fruitless think again over what i have said and the brother proved as good as his words he convincingly committed transgressions and showed me that he was undisturbed by the thought of them but i already knew before meeting with his friends that all christians did not believe in such a theory of of atonement mike mr coates himself 
walked in the in fear of God. His heart was pure, and he believed in the possibility of self-purification. The two ladies also shared this belief. Some of the books that came into my hands were full of devotion. So, although Mr. Coates was very much disturbed by this latest experience of mine, I was able to reassure him and tell him that the distorted belief of a Plymouth brother could not prejudice me against Christianity. My difficulties lay elsewhere. They were in regard to the Bible and its accepted interpretation.